0: Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you?
1: (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you doing?
0: Man, I love uh, the big, long, pregnant pause, and then your name in a whisper. Makes me happy.
1: Well, I'm glad it makes you happy, by God. You're the only one.
0: Uh, anything you want to clear up about the ECW edition? Anything that we said or covered or didn't cover? Because I know uh, you got a little bit of heat uh, for yelling the bingo numbers through the entire show. Uh, lots of people thought that was a little contradictory of you to say, "Oh, I thought you know Paul was a genius and he was a friend," and then you're yelling the bingo number. You're you're just trolling me. You know my love of ECW. And just like I I crap on Houston wrestling, I don't really mean that. I'm just doing it to get you riled up. Is that fair to say?
1: That you rile me up? Yes, that's fair to say.
0: Well, that's what the the
1: With your little tie downs there.
0: Oh, my gosh. Uh, Okay, here's what I'm trying. I'll try not to tie you down here. Okay. I'll let you speak openly and freely here. Why did you yell the bingo numbers the entire show last week?
1: so people would feel at home, those ECW fans that would feel at home that missed the ECW bingo hall. I wanted them to feel at home, so I just tried to give a little ambiance to the podcast, if you will. And I do think Paul Heyman is a hey, genius, late,
0: and I think Paul did algebra? a great job. Are you late for algebra?
1: Am I late for algebra?
0: I wanted you to feel at home because in the mid-'90s, you ran shows with the WWF and high school gyms. So I just wanted you to feel at home.
1: Yeah, sure, we all did.
0: Okay. Sort of just you know you wanted to act all fucking high and mighty there because ECW not
1: acting high and mighty at all. I'm I'm simply pointing a, a fact out, and it was way to have a little bit of fun, Conrad. We're
0: three or four minutes in. and I'm already pissed off. This is be a record.
1: You know the the only negative that I got was that people pointing out that I guess N and G and O are higher numbers and it apparently at some point i might have said g3 and apparently that three is only under the b i don't know who knew that who, who who knew that i don't know somebody somebody uh talked about the damn thing in there somewhere but that was only feedback i got on the damn thing Other i than how much they just love me
0: and, and hate you we did get uh quite a bit of follow-up about hey i thought you guys were going to cover one night stand we're going to cover that on another show I thought you should have covered more with Brian Pillman. We'll cover him completely on another show. Or what about Raven? We're going to cover him completely on another show. We, you know, we had two hours guys. We filled it up with ECW. There's not much else we could talk about, but I do want to talk about one little loose end that I regretted not covering with you. And that's when Paul started, uh, Heyman, that is with the WWE back in 2001. I want you to kinda of carry us through that because at the time they had not made a formal announcement to the guys, as far as I can remember, uh, that ECW was out of business. And it was of course a foregone conclusion at that point I think, but there were still some guys, you know, maintaining hope that he was gonna get a deal and that, you know, he wasn't really working on rollerball, he was working on a deal out in Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. But kinda of carry me through the way you remember that happening where all of a sudden he shows up on raw and he's a color commentator and he's with Jim Ross and it's like, nothing happened. Do you remember that signing?
1: Well, his, yeah, his business was, his business was done at that point. Paul had not turned the lights out. As a matter of fact, Tommy Dreamer is the one that turned the lights out on the business and, um, you know, Paul came to work for us. He, he needed a paycheck. He needed a job and it was a foregone conclusion. And Paul left and came to work where he could get a paycheck every week. It was that simple.
0: Uh, Well, it was a fun time in wrestling. It's one of my favorite times, uh, you know, that era uh, with the big three, so to speak. And I enjoyed touching on it. But one thing I want to touch on before we get to uh, this week's topic, and we talked about it on the Flair show this week, and I, I was curious if you had an opinion about Brent Hart's comments about the free birds never drawing I know that Michael Hayes is a friend of yours, and I know you've had a good relationship with Brett over the years. But I, I wanted you to kind of weigh in on this: uh, that the Freebirds didn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. The Rougeaus did, Rick Rude did, Owen Hart did, um, Demolition did, but the Freebirds never drew anything. I found that a little curious, since you know he was clearly talking about the WWF. I'm pretty sure Stu Hart's in the Hall of Fame, and I don't remember him being a draw in the WWF either. But that's just conveniently left out. What's your opinion?
1: Wow. Well, first of all, I, I can't disagree that Owen Hart should be in the Hall of Fame. I think uh, Owen is deserved of a Hall of Fame spot, and it won't be complete until he's in there. And Demolition, without a doubt, Rick Rude, another one that's worthy. But to say that the Freebirds were not worthy of being in the Hall of Fame and that they never drew, please. The birds drew in every single territory they ever worked from the time that they were teenagers. If they went in and they worked, they worked on top, and they popped the territory and they drew. Every place they worked. So, you know, as far as the birds not drawing and not having a place, they do have a place. Uh, Michael Hayes has a, has a place simply by himself for his backstage work and his creative work that he's done in the WWE since he's been there And you know Terry And Buddy Those three guys were an institution I mean they really and truly were They did draw money They were a great team And they are deserving of being In in the Hall of Fame And, and to get into name calling and, and things like that I read a tweet that Michael Hayes You know tweeted out Yep yeah, they, they definitely have been drunk in their days And they definitely have parted But they've also part popped every territory that they ever worked. And I couldn't think of three more deserving guys than the Freebirds to be in the hall of fame. So I don't know what, you know, what prompted that on Brett's part, but totally unfounded and, and totally unfair as well.
0: Before we move on to one other topic, you know, Bruce, it's kind of been unspoken, I think, uh, it, and maybe it has been just laid out this plainly. Owen's family doesn't want him in the hall of fame. Correct.
1: Well I, as far as I know I'm, I'm not sure that his uh widow right wa- wants him in the Hall of Fame. Yeah it, uh, I think that I think that his brothers and and sisters sure. and those people definitely want him in the Hall of Fame. I'm I'm just not sure that that's uh that's something that his widow endorses and that's something that she doesn't want. But
0: So to me yeah. it's fair, you know, for him not to be in. Not not to say that you know, he doesn't deserve to be, it's not
1: for lack of trying on WWE's part.
0: Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get to. Like it's, it's, it's difficult for him to take them to task for that when she doesn't want it. You know, you kind of want to respect her wishes. Exactly. I, I wish that we didn't have to talk about this, but, uh, we did a WrestleMania seven show recently. And through the course of that conversation, we of course discussed, you know, all the Iraq stuff and the war stuff and, Uh, Some touchy subjects, but one of the things that we discussed was when you guys made the decision to go ahead and burn the Hulkamania t-shirt, I asked, hey, did you guys ever discussed, you know, burning anything else? And uh, you said that, yes, there was a conversation about the American flag. Kind of remind everybody in case they didn't hear the WrestleMania seven episode, what that was.
1: Well, when it became legal to burn the American flag, it it was made legal. Before that, you would go to jail, essentially. It was a criminal offense to burn the American flag. And it was Jesse Ventura who was, at the time, a color commentator who sat in edit one and pitched the idea of burning the American flag to, to Vince, saying, hey, you can do it now. You should do this.
0: Well, that's obviously a controversial topic no matter who says it or when it's said. Uh but your friend, uh, who you've told me to um not say his name on the show and you want me to bleep, uh, but it rhymes with uh Have Scheltzer. He had a comment about that that I'd like to get your take on because Oh God. And I know that you don't You know, you're tired of this, and I'm sure some of our listeners are, but this is one in particular that I feel like should be discussed because if you don't remember uh, Jesse Ventura's background, kind of care everybody through what that was.
1: Well, Jesse was a Navy SEAL. Jesse served our country, and he was a Navy SEAL. Thank him for his service. But Jesse's got some outlandish thoughts and uh, somewhat liberal or independent libertarian, whatever the hell he is. But, you know, Jesse's Jesse.
0: Well, uh, Dave on his, our uh, or shave on his, uh, wrestling observer message board says in regards to this subject, I call 100% bullshit on it because Ventura told me personally that he felt the angle was disgusting. He continued a minute later, not only that, but Ventura was quoted in more than one media story saying the same thing. So... Well, you know what I say to that? What's that?
1: I say 100% fuck Dave Meltzer because Jesse Ventura did suggest it in edit one in Stanford, Connecticut, before a voiceover session while he was discussing politics with our director, Kerwin Silfies. Uh I was there, Kerwin was there, Kevin Dunn was there, and when Vince came in, Jesse pitched the idea to Vince. So unless Dave Meltzer or whatever the we beep want to call him. Was in edit one or has it bugged or has something? He doesn't know. So yes, Jesse did suggest that. Yes, Jesse did say that, and he said it in Sanford, Connecticut, in edit one because it was very controversial. It was very un—I guess you, I would say un-Jesse at the time because I thought you know here was this American patriot, but you know Melcher doesn't know what the hell he's talking about as usual. He's going on rumor and innuendo on what someone decided to tell him or other media outlets what chose to follow their narrative. So I call complete bullshit on that, and, I, you know, again, I don't care what the hell this guy has to say. But that that shit pisses me off because it did happen.
0: You don't have to get hot about it. I am hot about it. (laughs) Okay, Bruce, I got to admit, this is something that I don't know a lot about. I remember primetime wrestling as a kid. Uh, I watched it. I didn't know exactly uh, what was going on all the time, which I guess was probably the idea. I remember being very confused by Jameson and the Rosati sisters and all these crazy characters. And I'm interested to hear how this all came about and how you got tagged up with it. I know it started in early 85 and I know that the original hosts were not gorilla monsoon and Bobby Heenan, but man, those guys together were gold. So Kind of lay the groundwork. You're Mr. WWF. I don't have to do the heavy lifting in this show. I'm just going to lay out and let you tell the story, man.
1: Well, Primetime Wrestling is a show uh-huh. that aired on the USA Network, uh, usually on Thursday night. Well, okay,
0: on- okay. Hang on. Tell everybody, Tell everybody the character's voice that you're doing right now so they know what's up.
1: Uh, this is Clint from Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, I know everything that there is to know, and it's all fact because I read it somewhere in my friend's bathroom when I went poo-poo as a child. Okay. All right. Now, Primetime was uh, one of the cable shows that aired on the USA Network. And originally, I believe, it aired on Thursday nights. The original hosts were was a gentleman by the name of Jack Reynolds and Jesse the Body Ventura. And what they did is they took footage that was recorded in Philadelphia at the Spectrum, where they had a local cable and they would record the events at the Spectrum and they would air on the local cable in the Philadelphia area. In addition, Madison Square Garden Network, they would record the shows at uh, Madison Square Garden and they had all that footage. Boston Garden, uh, with the new England sports channel, they had, uh, footage that they taped there as well so they would take matches from these different areas and they would put them on primetime wrestling
0: essentially like house shows that they were just taping
1: that's exactly what they were okay and you know it was part of the deal with the buildings that the building they had a separate deal with the local sports cable and those things would air oftentimes live as they took place in the local markets So we would take that footage and put it on primetime wrestling. Um, Eventually, Jack Reynolds uh, stepped aside, Gorilla Monsoon, stepped into the host role with Jesse, and then Jesse was eventually replaced with Bobby Heenan and the team of Monsoon and Heenan was born. I don't remember exactly the year. I came in in 1987, in the summer of 1987. And when I came to work, for Titan sports, the parent company of WWF. I didn't actually have a job title. I didn't, I didn't have a specific duty, <laughs> nothing. Uh, Vince brought me up and had me sit in with the folks in booking. He had me sit in with the folks in marketing and promotions, uh, had me sit in with the guys in merchandising. And also he had me, uh, working with the television guys, uh, it, um, God what was the name of the uh, video one in Baltimore, which right. is where they did all of their post-production work while they were building their studios in Stanford. And I ended up in the TV side. I, I loved writing television. I loved producing television. And I came in when Joel Watts and I both came in at the same time, And Joel was in charge of syndication when he first came in, and I ended up taking over all of the cable properties as well as all the international programming. And Primetime Wrestling was one of those shows that I was in charge of. And so I would fly down to uh, Owings Mills, Maryland, which is essentially a suburb of Baltimore. And we would go to Video 1, and we would record the ins and outs with Bobby and Gorilla. And how we recorded it then is Bobby and Gorilla would sit in the studio on the set and they would throw to matches and they would play the matches and you would sit there and you'd watch the match and then we would come to them and we would literally shoot the damn thing live to tape. Wow. And so coming out of the match, you know, they'd cue them and they would uh, have their Stick in between either throw to a commercial or whatever else they were throwing to next. And we would do two shows, knock them out and be on our merry way. But it was, it was interesting because the, the gentleman that had produced the show before wasn't a wrestling guy. His name was Nelson Swigler, a nice man. Um, everybody that knows him is going, what Nelson? Nice. no, he was an asshole. No, Nelson Nelson was Nelson. Nelson was unique and uh, could be a little bit um, of a curmudgeon, I guess you could say. Nelson could be grumpy. And Nelson was the producer of the show record. So Nelson, how he would write the show, would he would just look at what matches he had and write them down. And then he would walk into Bobby and Gorilla and go... Um. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, uh, throw in you know, from the Killer Bees here. They're facing Dusty Wolf and S.D. Uh, Jones. Um, yeah, we'll do an out of that one. I don't know, throw the commercial. And there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it. There also weren't uh, pay- big pay-per-views with the exception of WrestleMania at that time either. But the storylines that were taking place on the Superstars and Challenge syndicated shows weren't really being followed either. He was just putting matches on. Wow. And without any rhyme or reason, and Gorilla and Bobby was the entertainment. And they had no production. They had no uh, pre-production. They had no real uh, let's do this, let's do that. It was just, okay, you're coming out of this match, react. And that's what they did. So when I got a hold of it, uh, I was tasked with making the show, uh, forming the show so that we're telling the same stories across the board. Um, all the same issues and angles are all carried across on all the cable shows and the, the same stories are being told on all the, all the shows. And this young 24-year-old kid is now in a studio – Telling Gorilla Monsoon huh. and Bobby the Brain Heenan what to do. You talk about getting over like a fart in church. <laughs> now, Bobby, I had known from Houston when Bobby would come in from time to time with Nick Bockwinkel, but it was it was a hey, how you doing? You know, uh, nice to see you again type thing. Very uh, casual. You know, we didn't didn't really know Bobby, but at least I knew him from before <laughs> another place before I got to to Titan Gorilla. You know, I didn't I didn't know from Adam, and so Gorilla had uh, had this idea, and I I traveled. Gino had me travel with him and Bobby in between towns, and we would go do TV for a few TVs, and and indoctrinated, got indoctrinated to Bobby and Gorilla really quick, and we became. You know, we got an understanding. We we all became friends. Uh, I grew to know and love Gorilla Monsoon. Um, wonderful, wonderful sweet man. And Bobby and I uh, became very best of friends. So it was, I, I jumped in. I jumped in with both feet. And I, I tried to kind of grab a hold of it and suggest some things that the guys in uh, video one, they looked at me like I was crazy. Who's, you know, who's this kid coming in? You know, that's gorilla Monsoon. You're telling them what to do. And I don't think that they took to it too kindly.
0: Give me an example. Well,
1: it's just when they would come out of a match and we wanted to plug, uh, like an issue. Um, for example, Survivor Series coming up and and you want to plug the the very first time that Andre and Hulk are going to be in the ring again since WrestleMania 3. And there's a story, you know, you want to you want to plug certain things. And previous to me, Bobby and Gino were left to their own devices. So when I came in, I actually had notes in between the matches. <laughs> saying, okay, uh, we're coming out of this match. Let's plug um, Survivor Series on pay-per-view. Let's plug this match, and let's talk about this issue. They're like, well, we know when to talk about what. I, I understand that. I understand you do, but I'd like to do it here, and here's why. And I would write in where the spots would go, and the production guys were used to doing that on their own. And there wasn't a lot of, there hadn't, before that, there hadn't been a lot of structure and a lot of thought behind telling the, the same stories across the board. They had a lot of auto, uh, autonomy, is that right? You yeah. know, they, they were left to their own devices. So there's this kid coming in, you know, and telling Grill and Bobby what to do was, it was interesting. It was it was really interesting at first and and at first Gorilla would kind of do it begrudgingly and he would do it exactly like I said, you know. I'd say, "Okay, uh, we'll come down to the spot, Gino. Let's hit, you know, first time ever, folks. Uh Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant will be in the same ring at the same time since WrestleMania 3 and what an explosion this is going to be and so on and so forth." And he'd come out, "Well, folks, uh survivor series this will be the first time that andre and hulk are in the ring since wrestlemania 3 what an explosion this will be and so on and so forth seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... Again, something else, they didn't do a lot of retakes.
0: Oh, I see.
1: And I would ask them to do things over again. And I would ask them to to plug things a certain way. And I would ask them, okay, we're coming out of this. What do you want? But, but I would get their input too because they were great and they had a report. And all the years in the business and the expertise that they had, I wanted to learn from them. So I wanted them to be a part of the process. And once we kind of got that flow, then they, you know, they were cool and they were great to work with.
0: Say again, what year you took over?
1: 1987. So you took summer of 87.
0: Okay. And so they, they were put together sometime in 86. I believe so. Yes. I'm just, I'm freestyling that based on my research. I think it was sometime in 86 and of course, everybody remembers gorilla was the straight man and Heenan was the comic relief and he was the heel, uh, and he would primarily cheer on the heels, uh, when they would throw it to the matches, uh, who, who was doing commentary? I know you guys didn't always use just those guys. Occasionally you'd use other folks.
1: Yeah, it would depend. We had, we had different commentary teams. We would use Lord Alfred Hayes in Madison square garden. Uh Gino would do Madison Square Garden gorilla did a lot of them. I had Rod Trondard brought Rod Trongard in for a while, who was a great radio voice from Minneapolis. He did some of Burns t v um, We used Superstar Billy Graham um, Wow, but so, Alfred traveled to a lot of those and we, we just had different announce teams
0: uh Trondard is not a guy that I recognize his name, but I'm sure I'll recognize his voice um. Great radio voice. Tell, you would have loved him. Tell me about um, the name he first started with. I think everybody listening knows Jesse Ventura. Catch us up on Jack Reynolds.
1: Jack was a guy from, I believe Jack was from Toronto and he was just one of those old announcers. And I think he did Jack Tunney's TV. I'm not really sure, but you know, I met Jack on the way out and, and I met him in Toronto. That's why I say, I think he was from Toronto but I didn't do a whole lot with Jack. When I got there, it was Bobby and Gorilla, and and they were the team. Uh, so they did a lot. They did a lot of experimenting before I got there with Primetime. time.
0: Uh, occasionally, this show would um, not just be filmed at Video One, and I, I did some uh, looking while you were kind of explaining. Video One's now closed. Uh, but I did. What
1: yeah, because it? we took all our business and
0: <laughs> built our own studio. So you guys were the primary, um, business for video one.
1: I would say that we, yes, yeah, at the time we pretty much utilized video ones there and all their resources. Yes.
0: But I mean, you were like the, the lifeblood of their business without you, yes, they were done without a doubt. Yes. So why wouldn't Vince just buy them? I
1: because them. he wanted a studio in Stanford next to the office.
0: Well, there you go. There's that. Um, but what I was getting at is not everything was shot in studio. Sometimes you guys would venture out and shoot on location. There's some fun stories I'm sure about Bush gardens and some other areas. Can you kind of carry us through some of the different landmarks that you guys shot the show at?
1: Well, every once in a while we would get a hair up our butt and try to do something on location. And the Nelson Swegler, who was in charge of production. Um, When I say he's in charge of production, he was in charge of hiring the crews and logistics of production. But as a creative producer, Nelson wasn't the most creative. But Nelson liked to fancy himself as a producer. And from time to time, we would take things out on the road. And Bobby Heenan, for example, you mentioned, mentioned Bush Gardens. Bobby Heenan had a connection at Bush Gardens in Tampa. And there were a lot of guys that lived in Tampa. So we thought, well, hell, let's go to Bush Gardens. We can get a show out of it. We had uh, Jimmy Snuka was coming back at the time. We had the Bushwhackers, um, and we just took Bobby and Gorilla and put them in unique situations and, and unique environments, and hilarity would ensue. But you know, with Bobby being kind of the bumbling fool, I think the one of the funniest things that happened at Bush Gardens that wasn't on camera was we were on the back of a truck in the middle of this giant field where the giraffes were, there were hippopotamus and just all kinds of exotic animals. And I'm standing in the back of the truck and I'm talking to Bobby and gorilla and I'm looking at them as I'm going through everything, a giraffe comes over, the top of my head and, and ate literally ate my run sheet is we're sitting there, you know, kind of going through things and it just was, was fun stuff. We, we put the bushwhackers out in the middle of, uh, a bush gardens, discovered them. And had Jimmy snooker traipsing through the wild animals and had fun. I think the, the most money spent was Old Tucson. We went to an old western town that was a set for a lot of westerns in Hollywood and it was in Tucson, right on the outskirts of Tucson hence the name Old Tucson. And this was a two day shoot and when you talk about I, I, I mentioned his name a lot Nelson Swigler. Um Nelson loved and I mean loved to spend Vince McMahon's money.
0: Vince ever, huh? How do you mean? Give me an example.
1: Well, if Vince ever wondered what to do with, with his money, Nelson could always find something to spend it on. So Nelson brings me this idea and says, here's this old town and he knew the guy that ran it and said he could get us a deal and we could shoot a couple of shows in old Tucson on this old movie set and have access to all of their extras and all their special effects and everything. And we could get two shows out of it and what a great deal it would be. And I said, great, you know, give me a budget. Let's, let's take a look at it and we'll see what we can do. Well, I got a budget. I think the budget was, around $30,000 and I figured, okay, $30,000. I'll get two shows out of it. That's not bad. We're going to be out there anyway. I don't, didn't have travel and everything else to think of when it came back. When we were all done. I think it was close to $78,000, something like that. It was 70. It was north of $70,000. Wow. And Vince got the bill and I got the phone call. <laughs> I was like, well, no, uh, my estimate was 30. Well, that goddamn bill is 70, you know, like, oh, shit. So, yeah, Nelson had a penchant for spending Vince's money. Um, we, we did some stuff out on a yacht where we got access. I watched the last primetime that aired right before we went to uh, Monday Night Raw format and went back and showed some of the stuff on the yacht with our limo driver, uh, Ray, and it, there's some great stories there, but, uh, it was a fun show and, and, and it grew and it evolved and eventually we decided that Bobby Heenan as an entity was probably, you know, bigger than the show itself. And, and we toyed with an idea of giving Bobby his very own show
0: and give him a talk show. <laughs> This was, uh, this was not long in the tooth here. What's that? This, uh, this Bobby Heenan show, this thing, this, (laughs) I'm going to lay out. I'll let you take over.
1: Well, the Bobby Heenan show was a great concept by God. Okay, folks. Yeah, it was one of my ideas, um, but the Heenan show was a way to spotlight Bobby and, and Bobby was looking to do other things. There was a lot of interest in Bobby out in Hollywood and, and other things. So the idea was put Bobby in in a different element, kind of get him away from gorilla and let him use his wit and his sense of humor on the average Joe. And the idea was simply to take, the, you know, the news of the world, the national Enquirer, take those really unique personalities, you know, like a uh, wolf boy and the world's oldest stripper, um, the world's fastest painter, just kind of bullshit like that and bring them on the show and unleash Bobby on them. Because Bobby, left to his own devices, was one hilarious son of a bitch. And he could really kind of tear people apart uh, without even trying. So we decide that we're going to make primetime a 90-minute show. And the last 30 minutes of the show would be the Bobby Heenan show. So we shot a big angle where we got Bobby off of the show and Bobby was kicked off of the show. We brought Roddy Piper in to co-host with Gorilla and Bobby had his own show. The Bobby Heenan show had its own open, had his own guests. And I think it may go down in history as one of the worst television shows ever to make air, which Today would probably make him one of the greatest television shows ever to air, and it lasted, I think, six weeks. And I'll never forget the phone call. I was in the studio, and I got paged, and I took the call in the voiceover booth, and it was Vince, and he said, "Bobby Heenan show's dead." I'm like, "What do you mean, Bobby Heenan show's dead? We we haven't even begun. We haven't even got the stamp thing going yet." It's dead. Talk to you later. And I find out later that the guy that was our liaison with the USA Network never called our good friends at the USA Network to let them know that the two-hour primetime television show that we had contracted for would now only be 90 minutes and that we were going to do this new concept with Bobby Heenan for the last (sighs) 30 minutes.
0: Nobody even mentioned it.
1: Nobody even mentioned it. Wow. Now the killer is it took USA network six weeks to figure it out. (laughs) But when they did, they were not very happy. That's awesome. So the Bobby Heenan show died and, uh, it was a very, very sad time because just when it was getting over by God, they went and killed the thing. Uh,
0: now I have to ask the the sisters, I want to know the story of how these sisters got involved with the WWE and prime time. And let me just get it out of the way. Was it a rib?
1: Well, are you kidding me? Of course not. It's not a rib. The Rosati sisters, the Rosati sisters were three lovely young ladies from, uh, I want to say Poughkeepsie, New York, who used to go to all of the WWF events in the Northeast. They were huge fans, and there wasn't a show that they missed. They went everywhere. So Vince had an idea to utilize their unique looks on, uh, at first it was on the Bobby Heenan show. I remember that. And Bobby referred to them as the oinkettes. Wow. And they dressed in one piece bathing suits. Mm-hmm. They were, um, plus size ladies. Full figured. Full figured. Thank you. Um, three of the sweetest ladies you'd ever want to know in your life. And they had a great sense of humor and, and most of the jokes that were at their expense were usually suggested by them. So when Bobby referred to them as the oinkettes and would do the "I smell bacon," the Rosati's must be around. A lot of that stuff was their idea, and a lot of that was them poking fun at themselves. And and they had a they had a great sense of humor, and, and they were a lot of fun. And and then. There was Jameson, and you have to remember Jameson.
0: Oh, I remember Jameson very well. And uh, Jameson, as a kid, I have to admit, was kind of confusing to me. I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I just know that he loved him some bushwhackers, and they loved him.
1: Well, Jameson was confusing to me as a producer. <laughs> um, Jameson was a, an actor from New York that Vince went to a dinner theater, like one of those murder mystery dinner theater type things. Right. And the Jameson character was a character in the, in the play that Vince saw and Vince was just tickled with the Jameson character. So he brought him in uh, to meet me and Bobby and came up with the idea. What a great sidekick this would be for the Bobby Heenan show. And Jameson was born and he never went away.
0: What what do you mean?
1: Well, I I mean, it was a great gag. It was fun the first time and maybe, you know, the second and third time. But after a while, you know, that just kind of got old in my opinion. And, you know, then Vince just loved it. So he put him with the bushwhackers and, And Jameson became a bonafide WWF superstar, pal. So, you know, that was Jameson.
0: Did you see um, a few years ago where people thought that Jameson was Andy Kindler?
1: Who the hell is Andy Kindler?
0: Andy Kindler is a stand-up comedian who you would recognize if you threw him in your Google machine right now. I know you're at your computer. Throw it in. K-I-N-D-L-E-R. Uh, He's been on stuff like uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, Last Comic Standing, The Daily Show. That's actually where I remember him. Uh, He made some appearances on David Letterman. Uh, I've even seen him do uh, stand-up before, uh, like Comedy Central and stuff like that. Anyway, really, really talented comedian. But a few years ago, people were convinced that that guy, Andy Kindler, was actually Jameson. Uh, Can you clarify
1: I can clarify that's not the same person.
0: <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know how that um, that whole thing got stirred up or started, but I did find it interesting. You
1: mean it was out. rumor and innuendo?
0: Yeah, and you actually got taken a task. I, I did too. Uh, that that we we continually say innuendo incorrectly because it's uh, in regards to something sexual in nature. I'd like to be clear. I do not use it incorrectly. Bruce does. Uh, I just repeat it uh, tongue in cheek, pardon the pun, for him. So, uh, the Rosati sisters, I'm not done with them. Need your shovel back? No, no, I'm good.
1: Okay.
0: Um, well, you know. You know, huh? <laughs> we get a request to have that in every show, so we got that one out of the way. Uh,
1: there Go was- ahead, Conrad.
0: The Rosati sisters. Yes. How would they eat their chicken salad?
1: Well, what you do, well, you know, you di- dice up the walnuts and, you know, and you put the may- mayonnaise in it and you, with the chick. well, you know, with the chicken and, you know, and, and the grape, you don't know, put grapes and you chop them up and, well, you know, when you just kind of mix it all. Well, you know, huh?
0: I, I struggle with the Rosati sisters, uh, because this is just something that I just don't see Vince McMahon being all for, uh, do you remember how the approach is made to get them onto the show? Yeah, I got a great idea. No, no. I mean, to them, <laughs> like, did you pitch it or did Vince to, call them or to Vivian
1: and all you I No, mean, nah, I brought them up and asked him if they wanted to be on the show. Got an idea, ladies. What do you think if you were the presenters for the Bobby Heenan Show? We would dress you very, very respectfully, very nice, one-piece bathing suit, nothing trashy. And um, you would escort the guests onto the Bobby Heenan Show and have a little fun with Bobby in the process. Cool. And they loved it. They love made them big stars. They're huge stars in Poughkeepsie.
0: How did it um, come to an end? Do you? I mean, if they're hardcore fans, it feels like something that they would be pretty devastated about to hear that. Hey, we're moving on. We're done with this now. Well,
1: from the Bobby Heenan show, when we went to Raw, we used them as the Raw girls. Right. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So they stayed on for a while, and Uh, then when we just stopped using Raw girls and. It changed.
0: What? Um, I don't know. When I'm going to get to ask this, and I have to ask it in every show. Of course, you do. What do you reckon you guys were paying the Rosati sisters? I don't know if we'd paid them at all. That's what I wanted to hear. There you go. I mean, why would you pay somebody to do something for free? Right? That's what Court. Bauer, exactly. that's, that's what Court Bauer does with us, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> there you go. Um, Pretty much the same. <laughs> If you're big enough you are and I market.
1: sit here. We talk to each other. It's like, well, help push record.
0: <laughs> hey, so,
1: that's all this is, folks. This is like, hey man, what time do you want to talk this week? I don't know what time do you want to talk. Okay, well, we'll take it. How send about the court? It. And
0: he'll send us a check. It'll be great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, court hasn't court hasn't done his part yet, though. Damn it.
0: Big um, so. big behind the curtain. So let's uh, let's talk about. Um, the Jamison pairing. Cause I know he did some stuff with, uh, the Bushwhackers. I mean, was he on the road with them for an extended period of time? Or was this just a one-off for pay-per-views and television tapings? Or, I mean, it seems like Jamison got a little bit of a push as crazy as that sounds.
1: He was a character, you know, first it started out just on television and yeah, he might've made a few house shows, but no, he wasn't. He wasn't out on all the house shows. He've made a few appearances here and there.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk uh, about somebody that is near and dear to your heart and probably everybody who's listening, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, He spends some time uh, on the show, I think in 89, uh, because I remember there was a Christmas episode that we're going to talk about, probably at length, but he spends some time, uh, I think, filling in for Bobby Heenan, if memory serves. So it's just him and Gorilla. Uh, What was it like working with Roddy? You kind of carried us through what it was like working with Bobby and working with Gorilla. How did that dynamic change when Piper was introduced into the mix?
1: Well, (laughs) Roddy was always interesting to produce. And Roddy and I were friends. We became friends. And Roddy could be intense. And, you know, you talk about, like, when I first started there trying to produce gorilla and Bobby and then throwing Roddy Piper into that mix, it was even more challenging because Roddy was very protective of his character and and Roddy kind of analyzed everything. And I dare say that Roddy would even overanalyze things (laughs) from time to time and read into things that weren't necessarily there. So it could be, it could be a little challenging at times. Um, I think for me, there was a great Halloween deal that we did one time. And and the funny part about it was, was that we brought Roddy in when we did the Bobby Heenan show. Right. And the primetime set was in the same studio that the Bobby Heenan set was in. And we would do, you know, like split screens where let's go to studio B and the Bobby Heenan show and Roddy would stare at Bobby across the damn studio. <laughs> so it looked weird on camera and they would go back and forth and, and forget. But I did one one time we did a Halloween show with uh, monsoon was brother love. And I forget what the hell I was, but, but I was on the show as brother love and Piper beats the hell out of me and knocks me out with a pumpkin and then I'm laying out and I'm supposed to be unconscious. And Roddy starts unbuttoning my shirt and rubbing my belly and then starts blowing on my belly, you know, like you do with a little baby, you know. Yeah,
0: like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And
1: I can't I'm I'm trying as bad as I can to just hold in the laughter. And he's tickling me and blowing on my belly and biting me and all this shit. And, and it was, uh, just classic Roddy Piper trying to keep a straight face. while he had his way with my tender tummy.
0: And Piper for that episode dressed up like Bobby Heenan. Um, he- uh, Heenan dressed up like the genius. It was a fun show. And, uh, I think, you know, hands down the costume of the night that night went to Gorilla Monsoon.
1: Is brother love?
0: Yeah, what a, a, a doubt. What a commitment that was.
1: Oh yeah, he did a great job with it too. I couldn't tell the difference there for a while.
0: <laughs> you didn't know if it was you or not. Is that me? I can't tell. I thought I was looking in a mirror. Oh yeah, you, you guys should have did the mime gimmick on that one. That would have been fun. Exactly.
1: But you know when you, you talk about dressing up as things, the one episode that very few people uh, know the backstory on was a Christmas episode.
0: Oh, this is something I want to talk about.
1: And the story was, as I said, you know, Piper, Piper, though, this time was in Studio B, if you will, separated from Bobby Heenan. Bobby was on the set of primetime with Gorilla. And Bobby spent the majority of the show dressed up as Santa Claus. Now, I need to preface this there. If there's any children listening...
0: Turn it off right now. Turn
1: it off right now.
0: And then get better parents.
1: <laughs> yes, and if there's any parents uh, listening that... Um, how do I say this? How, how do you how do you preface this? Yeah, fuck it. Um, Bobby Heenan's dressed up as Santa Claus, and we're building up to the payoff of this whole damn show, where Bobby's got a huge announcement at the end of the show, and Bobby builds it up. And he builds it up.
0: Did you know this was coming? Oh, I knew
1: what was supposed to happen. Yes. Okay. okay. I mean, we built the whole damn show around it. Then Bobby had a big surprise for all the kids. Hey, kids, make sure your parents let you stay up late tonight because I've got a Christmas surprise for you. And we build it up. We build it up. We build it up. We build it up. And we get to the end. And the idea was that Bobby was going to essentially say there is no Santa Claus. (gasps) But before he could say it, Piper was supposed to jump him and not let it get out. But what Bobby was going to do was Bobby was going to say, hey, there is no Santa Claus. It's all a fake. It's a scam. And Bobby was going to take off the beard. He was going to take off the hat, take off the suit and say, I'm not Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a fraud. There is no Santa Claus. And then Piper would come in, beat the hell out of Bobby and then bring out the real Santa Claus. Well, what actually happened was Bobby starts with, hey, kids, come on in. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Santa Claus, he's a fraud. He's a fake. There is no Santa Claus. You see this right here? It's fake. Fake beard. Fake hat. And Piper He's going, no, don't you, don't you do that, Bobby. No, children, you don't listen to him. There is a Santa Claus. There's a, well, Piper jumps up. Next thing you know, it, he's on top of Bobby. Well, Bobby doesn't have the shit off yet. Bobby's still in his Santa Claus gear. And Piper is on top of Bobby beating the shit out of him. Beating up Santa Claus. Beating up Santa Claus. And I want to say that this show aired like on Christmas Eve or like two days before Christmas. Some ridiculously close proximity like that. And it was, you know, hell, I thought it worked. But our audience really didn't like it. Because like I said, it was in close proximity to Christmas. So kids were out of school. Kids did stay up late to listen to Bobby's big announcement. And then they get to see their hero, Roddy Piper, beating the shit out of Santa Claus. And they never got the exposure that actually Santa Claus was Bobby Heenan. My argument was, come on, you could tell it was Bobby Heenan the whole time. And um, parents didn't exactly see it that way. That was another time. That That was... Next to not telling USA about the Bobby Heenan show, USA wasn't really happy about that one either.
0: I think it was Piper's last appearance on Prime Time. Might have been in that regard. Yeah, it might have been, and you know,
1: it uh, did. did I, I I talked about the the brother hut love healing segment on this show already, didn't I? No. All right. This is now, this is, this oh, is going to hey, uh, do
0: that. Let me tell you, if you haven't already go look at that uh, segment that we're talking about Christmas 89, what I found funny about that, that I, I've seen it in recent years is right in the middle of it. Uh, this is maybe the first time this was used on TV this way. Heenan says, uh, the word swerve in regard to Santa Claus, like kids, you've been swerved. There is no Santa Claus. <laughs> And just to hear the word swerve on a WWF broadcast in 1989 was pretty fun to me. Anyway, uh, continue. You were t- saying you healed someone. Well, Brother Love healed someone.
1: Well, there, there was the, the old, uh, right before Brother Love took his hiatus in 1991, um, the urban legend, the rumor and innuendo, and I like the way I say it, I don't give a damn whether I'm using it right or not, has that one of the reasons that I didn't do Brother Love anymore and, and that I exited the WWF at the time was because we did a segment where I healed someone on national television. And what happened was we were at a TV taping, there was a lull in the event. I don't know if it was a broken rope or something happened, but the, the crowd was dead. And we were trying to do something to entertain the crowd. And I was in my brother love stuff. I'd done some brother love shows. I said, well, help. I could just go out and heal somebody. And Vincent in his infinite wisdom said, you don't have hair one on your balls if you don't go out and heal someone. And so I took a gentleman from uh, one of the truck drivers. There was a wheelchair right there by the entrance. And put him in a wheelchair and had Terry Garvin wheel him out. And I told him, I said, just listen to me, man. Do what I I tell you to do. And I actually watched it the other day. And you can see me. (laughs) I take the microphone, I hold it down by my side, and I'm telling him what to do. Um, but there was no preparation, no nothing. I just went out ice cold and performed a live healing on someone uh, in this arena. And I did it strictly for the house, I did it strictly to entertain the live crowd. It was never done meant for air, but they shot it because Cameron didn't have anything to do. There was no match going on, and we couldn't do anything in the ring. So they shot it and the the poor bastard came out in a wheelchair. He had sunglasses. He had never, he was blind. he had never seen before and he had never walked before. And I laid hands upon him and I healed him so that he could see again and healed him again so that, uh, he could walk again. And it was a miracle and the rumor and you, and, and, and so anyway, fast forward, they had recorded this damn thing. And in the middle of the recording In the middle of of shooting this Just for shits and giggles Our illustrious director Took a shot Of the handicap section In the crowd And there's a row of of Folks uh, in wheelchairs One of them had binoculars And I'm talking about people who can't walk And who can't see Well
0: who was the director back then?
1: Same one that's there now, and so um, <laughs> someone in their infinite wisdom, unbeknownst to me, aired that.
0: Uh, hypothetically, unedited. Does your friend uh, from Kentucky, who does a podcast on MLW, does he have a nickname for this director? No. Okay. He doesn't. He doesn't make a reference to him being. A little bit of a character with his teeth.
1: No, yeah. no, you're talking about two different people.
0: Oh, oh, okay. Well, the K then. I'm
1: talking about Kerwin Silfie. Yeah, that's
0: what I wanted. Yeah, I was hoping
1: Kerwin's my buddy. Kerwin's great, man. He's Kerwin's
0: great. great director. Great guy. Wonderful guy.
1: He's in the heart. Of, I'm, in, I'm in the. I'm in the Kerwin Silfie's heart attack club. <laughs> we both had multiple heart attacks.
0: And by the way, he does not look like someone who would struggle with that.
1: Yeah, he's he's had a couple.
0: Working there is a hard living.
1: Yes, it is. So, but they aired that, and um, I, you know, I never heard USA get upset about it or anything else. But the the urban legend and the folklore is is that after I did that, that I was unceremoniously fired, and that is not the case. I was fired for being an asshole and not getting along, with John Filipelli, which we have covered.
0: Uh, so, is that the only time you ever healed someone on TV? No, I mean, is that the only time you did that bit
1: on TV? I've laid hands upon people all
0: the time. Well, we're not going to talk about the sex scandals from the '90s. Um, Easy Tiger. Uh, you know what I found interesting about this nope. this healing clip that you know it's on YouTube. If you want to Google it, oh God. Br- Brother Love with Blind Man, uh, and it'll <laughs> pop right up on YouTube. What I found interesting about this is, and I didn't realize this, somebody uh, smartened me up on social media over the weekend. This happened right up the road from me at the Von Braun Civic Center here in Huntsville, Alabama. No
1: kidding.
0: Yeah, on the back of the wheelchair, as the shot is finishing, you can see that it is the uh, building's wheelchair. It's got the big stamp on the back, VBCC, Von Braun Civic Center. That, as you know, is like. Two miles from my house, it's literally right down the road. So there's a wow. good chance I was at this and just don't remember it. I've probably blocked out all the painful memories like that.
1: Well, no, that would have been a highlight of your childhood. No to actually witness a live healing, if you will. Be healed, it's a miracle.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't watching I'm actually watching this right now as I'm talking. <laughs> you pushing this guy's head back? He got colored. (laughs) This is great. I split.
1: I split his. I split his head open at the bridge of his nose where his glasses were. I pushed down so hard and pulled him back. I I split his head open. Oh, I see. I'm sorry.
0: Right? Yeah. So here's the deal. Go. uh, (laughs) Go. Throw this in your Google machine, brother. Love with blind man, and uh, there it is. This is fun. Even now, man, you were over the top. How much cocaine were you on right here?
1: Oh, Conrad, Conrad, you and your damn stupid questions. So none, a lot, none, none. But that was also around the time that, that they were doing, you know, we went from, from primetime with Bobby and gorilla to Vince, you know coming in and hosting the show. And then we went to a live crowd, a live audience in the studio.
0: Okay. So before we get to that, let's, yeah, I, I forget, I'm so fascinated by your healing. I got sidetracked. Let's talk a little bit about. I could heal you too, man. You need some healing. Well, I think I got all, He's the, a heal. I got all the healing I need from the Dr. Carver shave butter at dollar shave club.com forward slash wrestle. Um, chat me up. There were other cameos, uh, over the time that you guys did this. Uh, and I know that you did some on location too. I remember specifically there being some stuff that you guys did at Trump Plaza with Gino playing cards, uh, carry me through. I'm sure there was a good story when you guys were gambling, uh, in my head, there was some drinking. There were some fun nights. If you guys are going to be in a casino set up for a few days and now you're filming, This lends itself to a good story. Let me drag it out of you.
1: Unfortunately, no. But because Atlantic City was local for us, so we would just drive down and drive back. But the the interesting thing is, is if you are going to shoot in a live casino like that, that they can't, like their dealers and everything cannot be involved in, like we couldn't set anything up. Like, we wanted to set up things, you know, where Gino kept hitting blackjack and Bobby would bust on everyone.
0: Oh, yeah, they can't, they can't fake that.
1: They can't fake that. They, that's illegal. They can't do it. And, the, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't work it in any way, shape, or form. So Monsoon just pulls out a wad of cash, and he, <laughs> he just decides, you know, okay, well, I'll just gamble and win some money. And they did allow us to shoot that.
0: Which I don't even uh, think they would let you do now.
1: Yeah, I don't know if they will will or not, but we, we did some crazy stuff. And that was, yeah, that was Monsoon just throwing money on the table. And then he's like, well, Bobby, just you bet and just keep, you know, um, keep hitting until you bust. Even if you hit 21, insist you, you take another hit, you know, type thing. And Monsoon was going to bankroll it. But we, yeah, that was, that was insane. We did, we did uh, for Russell, before WrestleMania 9, we went out and we shot opens and stuff in Caesar's Palace. By the pool,
0: by the pool, right?
1: We did.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, I forgot about the pool.
1: Um, We shot by the pool, but we also shot in the world famous fountains. And Vince McMahon and Randy Savage, you know the fountains that Evil Knievel jumped? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and wrecked and almost killed himself. Well, we're in front of the, the fountains, and, and Vince gives Randy Savage the Iggy to grab me, and they're going to throw me into the fountains in front of Caesar's palace. And then they were going to throw me in the fountain, and, and Vince got up on the ledge. Vince slipped, and Vince went in. So Vince is in one of his uh, multi-thousand-dollar suits. He's soaking wet. And my happy ass was dry. <laughs> but there's that moment that you realize that rut row, uh, big boy went in. So it was just a matter of time. I knew I was getting wet and they made sure that, uh, I went in and got completely submerged in the fountains at Caesar's palace in Las Vegas. Good times.
0: Well, I knew that pool shot. I mean, I knew when I saw the, um, the pool that there had to be some fun, filming that
1: well, the the pool shot we did we did stuff with bobby and gorilla and bobby being classic bobby folks the, the guy that you saw on screen was the same guy in real life except in real life there was no filter and he was he's all the way live so bobby there's an old couple of uh believe they were asian and they were taking pictures and That's right. they're That's taking pictures of one another, you know, off the own Bobby had a gimmick. Bobby used to say, oh, what a beautiful couple. Let me, let me take the picture for you. And Bobby would cut the heads off in the picture. That was back in the day when your camera yeah. Yeah. was a film camera and you had to take it in to get it developed. And you would wait for your pictures to come back. And you're so excited about these pictures that you took. And this nice man took a picture of the two of you next to this one-of-a-kind thing, and your head's cut off. And that was Bobby's gimmick. But this one time, they're out by the pool, and Bobby says, Oh, hey, let me take that picture. And Bobby backed these two nice elderly people right back into the pool. Oh, my. Now, there was a step. There was a ledge. They just went in about you know ankle deep, but yeah absolutely classic there were wow. good times about it. <laughs> you know the, the dastardly things that he did on TV were were not anything in comparison to what he did in real life
0: backing him into the bull that's pretty awesome dude
1: oh yeah it's Caesar's Palace with everything behind you and it was a cold day in Vegas so there weren't a lot of people around so it was it was classic it was excellent
0: So chat me up, uh, another person who would have filled in a little bit, uh, during this time would have been mean Gene Okerland. Uh, he was a staple on the show for a little bit. Uh, you've got to have some good mean Gene stories. Mean Gene is hilarious. Uh, we've had an opportunity to have him on uh, the podcast with Rick before, but I'm sure you've got some fun stories to share about Gene Okerland. Yeah,
1: Gene didn't do a whole lot on primetime. Gene was, did his All-American gig, and maybe every once in a while if we needed someone, if Gorilla wasn't available or something, or Bobby, we'd have Gene fill in. But Gene was a lot of fun, man. Gene was a classic. He's one of those guys that can go anywhere, do anything, and fit in. And gift a gab like you wouldn't believe.
0: I, uh, I'm curious to hear about... Um the Brooklyn brawler, I think the brawler debuted on primetime. Am I getting that right? Uh, Bobby, no, Heenan, I don't remember that. But. Bobby Heenan brought him in. Uh, this is right after I think rooster was turning babyface, maybe. And, uh, Heenan had brought in the, um, the Brooklyn brawler and then he attacked monsoon and beat him up uh, with a chair and then rooster makes the save thing that ring a bell.
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, if you say it happened, it happened. No, it, it does ring a bell. I do remember that, you know, and it's funny. And you brought him up Uh cock doo man on the very last prime time, the, the last prime time that there ever was. That's when Terry Taylor came back to the WWF at the time. And, you know, everybody talks about what a horrible gimmick it was with the red rooster and so Terry was given the opportunity when he came back, you know, you do what you want to do. And Terry's great idea for his gimmick and his big return to the WWF was terrific Terry Taylor. Mm. And you can see that on the very last uh, prime time, and it, it kind of got over like it just did with you. Um, and, he, and he did more in his terrific Terry Taylor persona that he came up with um that was like a rooster than he ever did when that was his gimmick just naturally and that's what we were looking for
0: um where's the underlying heat with you and terry taylor come from what do you mean well, you said cock a doodle man. I mean, you're shitting on him pretty good here. Why don't you just own well, no, it? Well, no,
1: because Terry Terry, just to me is the classic example of somebody that had they embraced the gimmick and really worked it, then I think it would have been a lot more successful than it was. And by not embracing it and, and going out and, and he would always bitch and moan that it was the gimmick instead of looking at the mirror in the mirror and saying, well, you know what? Maybe I could have done that better.
0: So just passing the buck rather than just owning up.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, uh, no, there's, I, I don't have anything against Terry. I, I, again, it goes back to, I'd have to care.
0: Uh, Sean Mooney was on a few of these shows and Sean Mooney's a guy. We don't really hear about that often anymore, but he was a big part of the WWF for a lot of this era. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Uh, I've been told on Twitter. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Should be one of our next t-shirts because I say it in every episode. That should be a
1: segment. I don't know when we'll talk about this again.
0: Yeah, well, Sean Mooney makes this week's I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Kind of catch everybody up on uh, his contribution to the business.
1: Sean Mooney was an anchor. He was, um, God, I forget where the hell he came from. I think it was Long Island, but don't hold me to that. But Sean was an anchor. He was a news guy. And came in and he became our event center host, which he would do all the wraparounds for all of the live events in the individual markets. Um, Great voice, great look. Vince loved his look. I mean, he had that classic anchor and he eventually became the anchor uh, in a Boston station. Uh, 10 o'clock news and has done very well for himself. But Sean was, was one of those guys He looked like he had credibility. He did have credibility, a wonderful guy, and you could put him in any situation. He had a great sense of humor and you could stick him in anywhere. He was the straight, um, credible guy, you know, the jeans kind of slapstick stuff.
0: He, uh, he's now all the way out in Tucson uh, on the NBC affiliate out there, uh, KVOA, um, I always thought he was awesome as a little kid. I thought he did a phenomenal job and I remember, and I'm curious cause you know, I'm just the dumb kid watching at the time, the set that you guys used to use with he and Gene Okerlund with all the little television monitors behind him, is that video one or is that? That was him? edit one okay. early on
1: with Gene doing it in all American before 1988, that was video one. Um, that was the, after 1988, that was the studio in Stanford edit one. And Sean's was an ultimate screen. So Sean did all his in a studio with the green screen behind him.
0: Wow. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Thanks for ruining my childhood. Hey, you're welcome. Um, was it called edit one in Stanford? There's no Santa Claus either. Swerve. Uh, was it called edit one as a nod to video one or as an FU or is that a rib?
1: No, it was called edit one because you have edit suites. It was the number one edit suite. You had edit two, you had edit three, later on four, five, six, seven, eight. That's all.
0: Well, that's not as fun as I was hoping for.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, the truth usually is just so disappointing, isn't it, sometimes?
0: A little bit. I'm Uh, sorry. Mr. Perfect uh, breaks up with Bobby Heenan on an episode of Primetime Wrestling. I remember that very vividly. Uh, Are there any other famous angles that you'd like to cover that happened in studio for primetime wrestling? We've talked about the Brooklyn brawler. We've talked about the Santa Claus thing. We've talked about the Halloween episode. Are there any other specific little segments or pieces of business that really stick out to you when you think about this show?
1: You know, not off the top of my head. Primetime was just that staple. You got a lot better wrestling, I thought, because you got some house show matches. They were usually longer in length. And we used main events, and uh, they, they weren't all squash matches. So it was a little bit different show. And you add Bobby and Gorilla in their element there, it just made the show different. So we we didn't utilize it as much as we probably should have to, to do that type of stuff. Um, you know, you talk about ratings. Back in the day, Primetime Wrestling held cable ratings for some of the shows on Thursday nights. It, it, was, it was a huge show, and we took it for granted because it was cable. You know, cable wasn't important at the time. You know, that was that, was that stuff that, that that group down south did. On TBS, you know that was ah, I was cable stuff. We were more concerned with the syndication and and uh, live event promotion. But cable was just a byproduct, and and cable was just something. Well, we've got it; it's national exposure. It's good, but it wasn't as important as it later became.
0: And uh, the concept was this wasn't you know the the bread and butter. Uh, just to kind of put a bow on that piece of conversation was the syndicated show and this was just kind of hodgepodge of that. It was highlights. Um so it wasn't it wasn't the it was kind of the B show, right? But it just became
1: Yeah, it's A's really show. the C show if you look at it, because you had Superstars was the A show syndicated and then Challenge was the B show and Primetime probably was the C show, followed by All American.
0: Isn't it amazing looking back that this show resonates so much with people that it wins our poll this week, but it was the sea show I mean it was almost like a Sunday night heat in the night in the late 90s
1: well, but you could also argue at the time it was the best show oh no like no. I said because of because of Bobby and sure. gorilla Dynamic and because of the matches and the different things that we did
0: well and what I enjoyed most was the matches weren't usually lit the same way. Um, I remember some of those shows, the lighting rigs being a lot different than what we would see at a superstars. Uh, and I know you explained that was because some of that was just house show footage that they just shot with a, a, a more simple shoot with one hard cam and maybe one on the ground. Um, but either way, I, I really enjoyed that look. I thought it was kind of old school and, and I appreciated it. Uh, you know, I'm a nerd for stuff. It was different. Yeah. Yeah. What day of the week did you shoot this and what time of day?
1: It depended on, you know, a lot of times because we would sh- usually shoot or do voiceovers for superstars on a Monday and challenge on a Tuesday. I'd keep Bobby and grill over and probably shoot them on a Wednesday.
0: Okay. So a lot of, uh, a lot of times this was a Wednesday shoot. What time of day is this morning? Afternoon, All day. evening. Okay.
1: Yeah. It, it would depend because Later on, when we were doing three weeks worth of programming, we would uh, we try and knock out three shows.
0: What um, what would have been the, the the time spent in front of the camera shooting this on a shoot day? Like, how long did it take for you guys to put together the program not not editing and all that, but just right well?
1: But like in I live. said, we we rolled it in live. They had all the matches ready to go. We we shot the. The ins and outs, and when then we rolled the spots, we rolled the matches, everything live, live. And when they were done, when they did their last see everybody, that show was ready to go.
0: Uh, so three hours ish, four hours ish, something like that. Two hours. Okay. Um, how different? Compare that because that's kind of you know early in your WWF comp- career. Compare that to when you left WWE and just the amount of time and preparation and second guessing and editing and what if we did this and what if we did that wow. and debate and uh,
1: we never could have gotten away with the things we got away with then to, today um, you know we, we let things happen we let things happen organically we didn't sit there and say okay you say this you say that you say you know you do this you react like that it, it was organic I trusted Bobby and Gorilla they trusted me the production crew was the best in the business and it was a lot of input from a lot of different people and it just flowed. You didn't have to write everything out for them. And once we got that flow that they knew, okay, here's what I want you to talk about this segment. They could take that, pick it up and run.
0: What do you, um, what do you attribute that to? I mean, is this just Vince talent? Well, I mean, are you saying that those guys are just that much more talented than everybody that who's there now? I mean...
1: What I'm saying is, is that the confidence and the level of trust was there. I don't think that the level of trust is there anymore, and I think that there has been people that become relied... that They rely on the writers. They rely on the production, whereas before the production relied on the talent. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I I want you to kind of give me more there, though, when you're saying the trust isn't there. The trust isn't there between Vince and the talent, or it's not between the incredible staff that they have now and the talent. All the above.
1: I think that Vince doesn't trust the talent to be able to go out on their own and perform without putting every word in their mouth and, and every breath and, and pause in their sentences. And the talent themselves now don't trust themselves to experiment and to get out of the box. I hate that term, but I'll say it, I'll use it, and try something new. The commentators are you know, so produced, and I dare say overproduced, that there's no time for individuality. There's no time for spontaneity. That's all we did back then. It it was, we knew the stories we wanted to tell and we gave them bullet points. And I relied on the talent to get those stories across.
0: What I find interesting is, um, well, let me ask the question first. How long did you guys spend on rehearsal for these shows? Zero. Because now the pre-shows like the pre-shows for all the pre-shows for SmackDown, the pre-shows for a pay-per-view there's real rehearsal.
1: Yeah, we didn't, we didn't rehearse. I, I would meet with the talent beforehand. We'd have a production meeting that would last all of maybe a half hour. And I'd go over all the segments, what we wanted to get over in each segment while the matches were going on because it was you know, live to tape, they would have to roll and we would have to wait for them. I would produce the next segment in between those matches. So while they're watching the match, I would tell them, okay, coming out of this, this is what you're going to do. But I didn't have every word written out. Right. It's like, okay, this is going to be a 30-second break. Um, You're going to throw to this. You're going to throw to that. No, I get it. No, we didn't. Oh my God, they would have killed me if we tried to rehearse. Hang on, guys. I'd like I'd like to bring you in. We're going to rehearse the, this two hour show four times, and then we're going to try and do it. How about if you? How about you just do it? If it sucks, you redo it. But there's also something to be said for you know reality and getting a true. When you have someone do something over and over and over and over again. It becomes monotonous and you're not going to get a genuine read or genuine feeling versus, you know, the first time when you're truly reacting.
0: Well, I don't disagree. And uh, I know we're going to get a lot of discussion on Twitter about that. Um, He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Uh, I don't know why you'd want to talk to me about that, but either way, let's talk about the format change. Uh, it happened in February of 91, I think, and you guys started to go, uh, towards a more primetime feel or a more late night feel, uh, because you did like, a an in-studio audience type concept, carry me through how that worked, whose idea it was, why you thought it was time for a change. If the ratings were do, doing so well, why make a change?
1: Well, it was Vince's idea. He wanted more interaction, more audience participation. So the idea was to make a live studio audience and and bring people in every week and and do the damn thing live.
0: Uh, where would you Where would you shoot that?
1: At the studio, okay. in the actual studio itself. We built stands and put chairs in the studio and built the set, built it all out, and would bring them all in and sit them down and knock out live shows, man.
0: And you gave it to them for free. TNA stuff. Gave it to them for free. Yep. Um, any any interesting uh, interactions with regulars? Because I imagine there were regulars. There's certainly regulars at TNA these days. And I- no, it was it was
1: tough, man. Because you're in Stamford, Connecticut, and a lot of them were employees or family and friends that would come in. You know, after the first few shows, it's hard to get an audience to come out on a Thursday night. In Stamford, Connecticut, and it became tough to get a lot of people in there, but but we did, and we would have you know employees bring their family and friends, and tell tell your neighbors, bring your dogs, come on out. I think the most interesting part of that was Vince's uh, attire.
0: Oh my gosh! During that time, hilarious. It's worth a Google. Uh, Vince McMahon primetime. Uh, you'll you won't be able to miss it, but. I'm curious, uh, you're talking about, I guess, essentially papering the audience here. Are you going to lie about that attendance too? Do we need to get Meltzer on here to straighten your ass out?
1: We don't say that name, first of all. Okay. Um,
0: Those we do not speak of.
1: It's, it's not papering the audience because we weren't selling tickets. It was simply <laughs> a first come, first serve, and come on in and fill up the audience. And, hey, thanks for coming.
0: So the paid attendance was zero.
1: Paid attendance was zero.
0: I so wanted to make sure we're gonna. We're gonna. I'm get
1: sure it. you did.
0: Um, Do you want to? You want to know how much the cameraman got paid? No, I don't. But I am curious. Uh, sure, what made it Vince's idea to start wearing the bodybuilding garb on television?
1: It was called Zero Boogie. Was the brand name? Is this real? This is real. It was called Zero Boogie, and it was the uh workout gear that Vince wanted to promote and. And be a part of for the WBF.
0: And so his, that's
1: that's that shit was ugly.
0: And his way of getting it over
1: was him wearing it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, and I, oh, I hated the stuff. It was,
0: if memory serves, Hogan wore it right before WrestleMania too when you guys teased his retirement before WrestleMania. You weren't there. Never mind. Um, February of 91. You're still there before this goes completely away. Uh, any memory, not it. you, uh, any memories of um, the studio concept inversion? version? No,
1: it, it was just, for me, it was just the difficulty of getting that crowd there, you know, every time and getting the crowd to sit through all that. It, it just wasn't. It wasn't a great environment and most of the time Vince would be late and you'd be producing him at the very last minute and having him on the show was just challenging sometimes because he would, he would show up at the last minute and change everything even then. So, you know, that part was, was kind of challenging and, and I was on my way out at that time too. So um, I was frustrated with other other things, so it was the frustration of God, how are we going to get a crowd here every week and dealing with Vince and dealing with John Filippelli and you know uh, being at a maturity level where i where I thought I was the hottest thing that there was and, and I clearly wasn't um, yeah, that was a bad time for me, but it was it was a frustration level, and I left, and when I came back, they were doing the the panel where we got got rid of the live audience and they went to kind of a panel format with uh, Vince and Bobby and perfect and Duggan and stuff like that, which is what eventually led to the creation of Monday night raw.
0: Well, let's, let's slow our roll here. Um, they only do this studio format for like seven, eight months and then they go to the panel and with the panel, That's around when you're back. So this has to be harder. Uh, you know, at various points, there's a lot of different guys here. So it's not just the same two over and over and over with Bobby and gorilla. This has to be a lot more difficult because you don't want people to talk over each other and step on each other. And they need to complete sentences and thoughts, but they also need to further the angle Uh, or whatever the initiative is that you guys are talking about, but you've got a lot of egos because they're all in the wrestling business. People want to get their shit in. From a production standpoint, this has to be just eons harder than what you originally had on the original format. Is that fair?
1: It is, and thank God I didn't have to produce a lot of those shows. But what I did have to do is I had to... Uh, arrange it, and book all those guys in and out, make it make sense with the touring schedules. And it was always different, like you said, but it was expensive as hell because you had to pull guys off of the tour, have them come in, and you got to put them up at a hotel. You had uh, travel back and forth and limos and what have you. And the costs just were skyrocketing. So the idea that, hey, we, we, we can't go back. Vince didn't want to go backwards. That was, that was for sure. And we weren't, you know, business wasn't the best in the world, so we were looking at, at other ways to do business. And we thought, well, you know, in the old days, they did studio wrestling. We've got a studio here. And the idea was one of where the studio was next to it was a big warehouse. It was the uh, merchandise warehouse, which later became where we trained guys and we put some rings in there. One idea was to take that area and build out an arena. Put a permanent ring, put your lighting in, put seats in, and essentially do live studio wrestling every Monday night. So you'd bring the tours through the Northeast, and whatever tour was, they would stop, you know, come through, route them through Stanford every Monday night. Now you say, well, you're, now you're bringing a whole tour in, but believe it or not, it was actually more cost effective to bring the whole tour through and, and route a tour in the Northeast uh, on Sunday and Monday to get them through than it was to pull certain guys off of a tour and bring them into Stanford.
0: How's that possible?
1: It, it just worked out that way. It was when we were looking at routing and being able to do things, concentrating on the Northeast, it, it made sense. You know, we were, you look at, uh, how Jimmy Kimmel does it now being in New York and, and how the talk shows did it. Letterman, you know, did it and they would take stars and, and, we also looked at being able to take stars that were wanting to promote a book and and use celebrities and different things to make it a different show. And the idea behind it, the working idea behind the show was it would be a raw down and dirty show. Very raw, very gritty, um, not a big arena, not that kind of look. And, We want, you know, we wanted it to look shitty, not shitty, but, but gritty.
0: Right.
1: And, um, that's kind of how, how raw was born. And, And then we went to the decided on the Manhattan center and, you know, we had plans drawn up for the studio to build that out, but nothing really ever materialized other than talking about it and making some drawings. So then primetime died.
0: So when, when do you get the heads up that we're going to do something different? So we're doing away with,
1: We, we probably, we started discussing it, um, October, November. And yeah, probably October. And we talked to USA about it and, and doing an event-oriented show instead of the studio show, and we, you know, Vince's kind of guy. You know, let's pull that trigger, let's do it. And so we started moving, moving towards it, and, and do it. And the Manhattan Center originally, we we talked about uh, as well, not besides the studio, was using the Paramount, which is the small theater that's attached to Madison Square Garden. So we could say live from Madison Square Garden's Paramount Theater, which is where they used to hold the uh, closed-circuit TVs when the garden would sell out and they would do closed-circuit next door. But then the Manhattan Center was something that they suggested to us, and we went over and looked at it and fell in love with the building. Yeah, uh, but that's the raw episode. We can get into all that. But that that was kind of the end of uh primetime just became too expensive to do.
0: Uh how many uh seats would the uh Manhattan Center hold?
1: We're not going to get into that right now, Conrad. No, just that's free- a raw episode. Uh, probably
0: 1200. B19. Fucking asshole making fun of ECW last week.
1: The Manhattan Center was not a bingo hall, my kind, sir.
0: No, I'm aware.
1: It was a theater. It was a landmark (laughs) of New York.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? Uh, The ECW arena is a landmark now in South Philadelphia at the corner of Swanson and Ridner.
1: G718! I'd
0: really like, if you can, for you to talk a little bit One last time about Bobby and Gorilla. Uh, We've wanted to talk about them for a long time. I know they were both great friends to you. Bobby still is, of course. Uh, Bobby's had some poor health in recent years. And, of course, Gorilla has left us now. But you talk about these guys, you know, when we hang out in real life in such a glowing way and about what they meant to you in your career as a youngster, a 24-year-old. When you start with the company And how they helped you and what they meant to you. And before we get out of here, I'd like for us to just put aside all our bullshit with each other, our back and forth, jovial, funny, ha ha, and have a real moment about Bobby and gorilla.
1: Well, you know, you kind of said it there. I was a, a young kid coming up from Texas and here are two stalwarts of the wrestling industry that could forget more than I would ever know at that time. And they took me in, and they taught me the Titan way, the WWF way. They could have been assholes, and they could have shunned me and made my job really difficult. Instead, they made my job really easy and a whole shitload full of fun. And I couldn't have asked for two better human beings on the face of the earth. Gorilla Monsoon, uh, Bob Morella, was... One of the kindest gentlemen I ever had the pleasure of knowing. Um, when I asked my wife to marry me in Atlantic City, uh, Gorilla set up the whole thing and took us out to the Bacchanal. And um, it was, you know, we, we, had, we would go and spend weekends with uh, Gorilla and his wife Maureen and uh, Arnold and Betty Skol in Atlantic City. My wife and I would go down and spend weekends with him, and Gorilla would always make sure that everybody got beautiful sweets and everything was comped and and so on and so forth. Um, but he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. And Bobby Heenan's one of my best friends in the business. Um, we were so close that that we did a lot of. You know, for a long time we did everything together. So much so that I'll never forget a waitress asking Bobby one time, "Oh, is that your son?" And from that moment on, he became dad. He called his wife at home and say, "Honey, uh, we have another son, and uh, or we have another child. It's a boy, and it was me. And I became a member of the Heenan family, and they were part of my family, and I, I love them to death. But it, it was." Like I said, it could have been hard. They made it great. They made it easy, and they made it a whole hell of a lot of fun. And at Gorilla's funeral, Bobby, um, after everybody was had left the, the gravesite, Bobby sat and wanted to have some private time with, with Gorilla, you know, and say his goodbyes in private. And it was one of the saddest things, you know, that I can ever remember having to go over and and, and help carry Bobby away because he was just so shaken, and and we all were. It was a, a terrible, terrible time. But, you know, I always remember the good in Gino, and he was just this godlike figure to me. He was larger than life, figuratively and literally. Um, but if. He'd give you the shirt off his back, and just a great guy. And Bobby Heenan, please, he's he's just top notch to me. So I was very very fortunate. Um, I didn't know, you know, when I first got there what to expect, but I was very fortunate that those guys made it easy for me.
0: Bobby Heenan is known for being uh, one of the, if not the very sharpest mind in the history of wrestling just as far as his wit uh, and his banter can you share you've shared with us before a few hilarious Dusty Road stories, checking into the hotel going up and down the road and getting stopped and uh, second most famous athlete do you have any Bobby Heenan travel stories or Gorilla Monsoon travel stories you can share <laughs>
1: Oh, God! I do. Probably shouldn't. I, I will I, There was one time that we had to go back to the hotel to get something out of Gorilla's room. and I forget what what it was, but we had the key to Gorilla's hotel room, and when we went into the room, Bobby gets on the bed and starts jumping on the bed of the maid bed in Gorilla's room. And I'm looking at him I'm like, what the hell are you doing? He's like a little kid jumping. I mean, this is a grown-ass man, and he's jumping on the bed. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Because goes, oh, it's, no, it's great. We'll smooth out the top cover, and it'll look like everything's fine. But when he gets in it tonight, it'll all be crumbly, and he won't be able to get comfortable because we're bunching up the sheets and we're bunching up all the stuff underneath the bed, and it'll be uncomfortable for him. He um, was a child. He went through Gorilla's uh, shaving kit and found a a, a uh, not a jar but a tube of Boil Ease. Oh!
0: My.
1: <laughs> and was like, "Ew, Boil Ease." Just the kind of guy, you know. If you're around Bobby Hena man, you were always laughing. Just, just always laughing. Um he tells a story about the hotel in Chicago, the air host hotel in Chicago, which was a famous hotel where the boys all stayed. And it was a dump. It was a dumps dump, but the boys all stayed there because they had a bar that stayed open all night. And it was like 10 bucks a night. So one night, the next day they're getting ready to leave. And, and, uh, Bobby and Pat Patterson are there and they're, they say, Hey, you know what, this place is so horrible, we should probably just take a shit under the bed and leave it. And so they take the mattress off of the bed and they look under the bed and someone had already taken a shit (laughs) under the bed that they had been staying in all night. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of classic stories like that with with the wheeze and um, he blames me for so much, but you know Bobby Bobby got uh passed out one time on a plane and they arrested him for like some minuscule amount of marijuana and of course that was my fault because I let Bobby smoke marijuana and uh, allegedly showed him how to smoke marijuana so half of his uh Hall of Fame introductions speech is talking about me getting high and So when he got out of the out of jail or whatever they did to him out of the hospital, he's like, you, you son of a bitch. It's all your fault. (laughs) Hey, I just just shared. I didn't tell you to leave it in your bag. So, but I love Bobby Heenan to death. I always will.
0: Well, I appreciate you uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit and sharing some stories Um, about both of those guys, because I know that, you know, to us, you know, people listening to this, myself included, you know, they were just television characters for us, but in your case, you know, these were, uh, real life friends and travel companions and coworkers and mentors and a lot of other stuff and, uh, Pioneers. Yeah. And I I don't know that they get all the respect and all the appreciation that they deserve. And it's a shame that maybe uh, Bobby won't really until he um, passes away. It's like everybody wants to. When someone dies, then they want to come out and celebrate how great they were. But if you ask anybody who's really been paying attention to pro wrestling, I think it's pretty much unanimous at this point that Bobby Heenan is the greatest manager of all time. Would you agree with that? No question. And I think you could even go a step further and say that, and, and Rick has told me, Mr. Flair has told me this, uh, he believes Bobby Heenan to be one of the all time greatest talents because he literally did everything from being, you know, behind the scenes and a manager and a commentator and, you know, an actual wrestler. I mean, he literally did everything that there was to do in the business and he wasn't better at some than another. He was awesome at everything he did.
1: He was great at everything he did.
0: It's an old story, uh, but you've told it to me before, and I'm not not sure that everybody has heard it at this point. Uh, You were on a plane with Andre the Giant and Bobby the Brain Heenan, and uh, Andre wanted to get drinking, as many of the boys do on these planes. He places his drink order. I'll let you take it from here.
1: Well, Andre was seated in first class and Andre had put his bag up over his head because that was his space by God. And it didn't matter if there was someone else's bags up there. Andre would take them out and put them in the aisle place his there and then go sit down was Bobby uh, was was seated in one chair and uh, Andre went to sit down in the other. He was kind of messing with the centerpiece of the chair when the flight attendant came up and, Asked him, can I get you anything, sir? And Andre thought about it for a second, and he said, screw driver. That's how Andre talked. <laughs> and Andre finally sat down, and he's sitting in his chair, and takes a little while, and the flight attendant comes back, and she hands Andre a screwdriver, screwdriver a flathead screwdriver, the tool. And Andre looks at it and takes it and says, what's this? And she says, well, you asked for a screwdriver. He went, hmm. I wonder what you would bring me if I asked for Bloody Mary. That's my favorite Andre story. (laughs) True story, too. Um... But but I'm sure there's some wrestling expert that writes a something or other that will tell me that never happened.
0: Did Andre used to take dumps in the tub? Yeah.
1: In Japan, he couldn't fit.
0: So he would just do a tub plop? Yeah. Was that normal? I mean, did a lot of guys do tub plops or was it just Andre? Well, there
1: weren't a lot of guys that were seven four, five hundred 500 pounds.
0: But there were other big guys who maybe yeah, could fit. Yeah, they
1: probably did, yeah.
0: So was it just, what was the, I mean, like, if that wasn't an option, it's tub and then bed or bed, then tub? Or,
1: well, you lay newspaper down and you go in the tub and then you crumble it all up and throw it away.
0: Wow, well, that's a lot of detail I did not expect to hear. Have you have you done a tub plot before with newspaper? No. How, how do you know that? Uh,
1: because that's how the big guys had to do it.
0: But uh, who smartened you up about the newspaper? They did. Oh, okay.
1: Sir, you have newspaper. Andre need to shit.
0: Uh, What? uh, Hypothetically, was Andre ever taking a shit when a lady offered to service him with her mouth?
1: Okay, moving
0: on. What?
1: Yes, uh, we've had about enough of you.
0: You're not going to tell that story? No,
1: I'm not going to tell that story. An
0: Andre Blumpkin is ratings. <laughs>
1: right perfect pervert.
0: Uh, tweet at Bruce Pritchard uh, and use hashtag Andre Blumpkin if you'd like to hear the story. And you will be blocked. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm glad we got to spend some time uh, on Gorilla and uh, on Bobby Heenan. I know that this is something that you've wanted to do for a long time and Uh, I have to admit, I wasn't sure what all we'd be able to cover in this one, but I appreciate you carrying us through it and talking about primetime wrestling. Anything else we want to mention before we get out of here this week?
1: No, I don't think so. Because, you know, Conrad, I love you. Now, that doesn't mean I I like you, but I do enjoy doing this with you, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate all of our fans that uh, tune in, download us, and listen.
0: So keep doing it, man. Keep downloading. Keep leaving us reviews. Tell your friends. And we'll see you right here next Friday on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Richard.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you fifteen to <laughs> twenty? You pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys. The podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.